This is Playback Daily with Gemma Craddock for Wednesday the 14th of September and today we'll listen back to Mokra Babies, Mammy's Buns, Reforestation and plenty more. Here's a taster of what's coming up. With 32 years old, gay man living in an Inish man. Yes. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, I don't know, what does that do for his options? Well, he said himself, um, and I'm quoting here, I'm not gay on the island because there's nobody to be gay with. So... <laughs> <laughs> Like a jambon mm-hmm. is not traditional Irish food to most people. But I see it as there is a bit of a tradition with a jambon from your local supermarket there now. Anyone is free in this time to go out and express their opinion. And actually, I hope, you know, whether you're a monarchist or Republican, you, you go and do that. The Dublin mountains, which are close to here, uh, a lot of people who, who would go up there would say, well, that's nature, that's wild, and isn't it beautiful? If I go up to the Dublin mountains now, all I see is a, is a desert. So let's start with that bleak pronouncement about the state of our wild spaces. Owen Dalton is a passionate advocate for native Irish ecosystems and has devoted years of his life to his rewilding project on 70 plus acres on the Barra Peninsula. And now a temperate rainforest flourishes. And Owen's passion is catching, as Ray learned. But your love and your passion... Uh, for nature and particularly wild, you know, nature in the wild is, is like sap coming out of a tree. It's there in every page. It's, it's, it's the predominant thing there. Thank you. Uh, if, if the writing is inspired, I think it's purely a product of the environment in which I've spent the last 13 years. I find it difficult to believe that anybody could spend time, that that period of time, with a relationship with that place and not produce something in, inspired yeah. in terms of writing. Why the Barra Peninsula? What attracted me to the Barra Peninsula initially, there was a couple of things. Uh, first off, um, I trained as a sculptor in Italy for seven years. And I, even before I went to Italy, uh, I knew that I was, I'm from Dublin, as you can tell from my (laughs) accent, but I knew that I was going to want to move somewhere down to the West. And I went for a visit to the Bear Peninsula and what I loved, I just fell in love with the landscape because it's intensely sculptural. The, the, The landscape itself is sculpture. That was combined with the fact that I, I, I kind of had a thing about trees for a long time and I had this, the reason why I wanted to move to the to the country, to the west somewhere, was I had this idea of buying some land and planting trees. But when I went to the Bear Peninsula, what I saw was that any pieces of land that had been left untended, unfarmed for a period of time, had naturally reverted back to the richest, most beautiful, uh, wild, natural woodland. And I said, this is, that's the place for me. Because when we think of trees growing, we think of us as in humans planting them, don't we? We do. Of course, they were around before we were. Trees (laughs) were successfully reproducing for hundreds of millions of years before we came on on the scene. Um, the the and they would continue to do so without any any problems whatsoever. The the thing that prevents them from doing that is artificially high levels of grazing. So, if you have every seedling produced by a tree being gobbled up 
almost immediately, either by artificially high densities of uh, deer or sheep, uh, whether it's livestock or wild herbivores, the effect is essentially the same. The trees can't reproduce. Okay, so let's talk about your patch then, which you eventually bought. Yeah. Um, And you, although you were sort of enamoured by it initially, when you went to investigate it, you discovered that it it was in bad shape. The place was completely wrecked. I mean, it was still incredibly beautiful. There were there was a huge variety of wild native trees, old oaks covered in mosses and ferns. And um, but it, ecologically, the place was completely and utterly wrecked. And it was the goats and the deer. It was yeah. There, there, there was it was two um, water what are essentially uh, non-native invasive invasive species, feral goats and sika deer, and they were stripping away every single uh, seedling of the, the 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 trees that were there. They had also completely removed the g- ground flora. So. We normally associate native woodland with a really rich ground floor of bluebells and wood anemone and celandine and a whole huge great diversity of other uh, flora. And all of that was completely missing. It was stripped out. Um, On top of that, they they were stripping the bark off quite quite a lot of the mature trees so the whole place was completely littered with, with dead, see, mature trees. See, here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. People yeah. at home are going, right, this man went down, he bought a patch of land overlooking the sea, sculpted out of the rock, barren, lovely, and then he had deer and goat wandering free. And you think, this is idyllic, but yeah. but these little feckers were ruining it. Yeah, you have to you have to start I I think we have to start understanding things in ecological terms. Right. We can't we can't go on just ignoring uh that that perspective any longer. Um and the place the place was in ecological meltdown if if the if what was going on there had been allowed to continue for another decade or two uh, the place would it was it was starting to die out because right. what was what was also happening was that the overgrazing was creating exactly the right conditions for a whole range of non-native plant species invasive plant species to move in the worst of which uh, so you had seven or eight or nine different species but the worst of the lot was rhododendron right. And a lot of the land was already seriously infested with rhododendron. And that's the rhododendron problem is kind of symptomatic of the overgrazing. The overgrazing and is that's the an invasive reaper. plant, is it? Yeah, it, it, it's, it was introduced in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries into the large landed estates, largely as cover. Well, it was admired because of the purple flowers and still is. Um, but also it was used as cover for game birds for people that people used to like shooting. Okay. Um, and and over so you, time you, you don't buy over. into that old saying that a weed is just a flower in the wrong place. I think that's... Um, An oversimplification. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, 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 the problem with invasive species can't, it has to be taken seriously mm. because if you take, for example... 
It's generally estimated that once in in prehistory, about 80% of Ireland was covered in wild native forest. So if you go back to the beginning, uh, we're down to around 1% now, or possibly just marginally over yeah. that. But and most of that is is dying. It's okay. essentially dying. And, so. and they're described as the lungs of the earth. So so all of this Absolutely. all of this, your microcosm of a world is reflective of what's happening globally. Uh, and one Very of the lovely much. things you quote somebody is that that, that we as humans uh, think that we own the planet, when in fact we're part of it. We're part of the biosystem that is the planet, and we yeah. need to, we need a, a shift, an attitudinal shift. We absolutely do. Uh, if we don't, I think it's it's curtains for us too. Uh, the great uh, biologist, uh, probably the greatest of the last 100 years or so, Edward O. Wilson, who passed away just the, at the end of last year, he said um, that we have to take on board, uh, we have to start seeing things in terms of that rather than the biosphere belonging to us, that we belong to it. Mm. And if we don't start seeing those things in those terms, we're going to destroy everything on which our everything that we hold dear depends. See, there's no, you know, uh, there are no rules. So, so we evolved. We got bigger brains, which allowed us to develop technology, industrial mm. revolution, agriculture, and all of that happened. You know, <laughs> and the knock-on effects we're, we're paying for now. Yeah, but our ancestors weren't in as enlightened about things as we are. No, so they were just going about things thinking that's as it should be, and that worked perfectly fine uh, for as long as the impacts were local or regional. The impacts are now global, mm. uh, and they're accelerating. And until we rein in. Uh, our activities and and the the the, the impacts we're having, uh, it's gonna they're gonna continue to do so, and it's going to make life extremely difficult for all of us, um, if not impossible. Okay, how do you communicate the message? I'm I'm you know I'm intrigued by this because I don't think, despite the scientific facts, that the message is getting through to most people. I wholeheartedly agree. And I would say that the media has a lot to answer for in that regard. I don't think the media is anything like as um, forthright as it should be in in getting those messages across. I think that um, the major problem that we face is intense lobbying by all sorts of industries who want things to carry on going in the direction they're going in. And the people who are involved in those industries and the the lobbyists and so on seem to be completely oblivious of the fact that it's their children and their grandchildren who are going to suffer the effects of what we're doing now as well as everybody else's. Mm. In the book, you say that, you know, as humans, we don't spot gradual changes mm. you know we don't that's yeah. not that's not the way our brain works we didn't evolve uh, you know if if you think about the course of human evolution there wasn't much advantage we didn't need to be able to to perceive change that was happening over long periods of time 
either either because you know being able to do so would be wouldn't be much of an advantage mm. and also generally there wouldn't be much we could do about it anyway whereas if there was a, a a fierce predator stalking us and we needed to be able to perceive quick movement and mm. that's what we're good at we're we're good at yeah so so i suppose the reason i brought that up is because it's human nature um to react quickly to something that's Impending, some danger that's happening, flight or fight. We, some, we, something that's right in front of yes. your face. Yeah, or or but, immediate but, gratification, you know, yeah. you, you eat a, a sugary thing or a salty thing or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's against human nature then to look forward to next generations. Well, what I'd say and is act that... And, and yeah. behave in a way that's going to protect them. What I'd say is that human nature isn't a simplistic thing. It's, it's a complex thing. And... You know, if if you talk about human nature in terms of biology, I I certainly believe that those elements of the equation are important. But I also believe that other other aspects are equally important. Uh, above all, culture. And one of the things that's very clear about us as a species is that we're highly capable of changing very, very rapidly as soon as you get a critical mass of people who understand the need to do so. Okay, and, and everybody... And that's been proven the pandemic over and, and over again. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, and so yeah. what we need is that kind of a shift in terms of how we relate to the ecosystems and other life forms with, with, with whom we share the But planet. it has to be global, doesn't it? Because if, if we're here in Ireland, population of 5 million uh, in the Republic, um, and we're been asked to do things that are affecting our life in probably a negative way. Uh, and then we're looking to bigger powers like America or China or whatever who aren't been asked to do similar things. And we go, well, what's the point? Well, the point is that it has to be global, but it also has to be national and it has to be regional and it has to be local. It has and to be at and every individual, level. Yeah. Because if we're sitting there here saying, well, what's the point in us doing anything when the Chinese are building new coal power station, coal-fired power stations or whatever, then what's to stop them from saying, well, what's the point in us doing anything when that other crowd are, mm. are doing nothing? And no, and everybody, everybody, it's very easy for everybody to use these as excuses mm. for doing nothing. And it means collective suicide, ultimately. Yeah, well, maybe maybe not. It's future generations, you know, that's the thing. Um, yeah. Um, so just let's go back to... Uh, the Bear Peninsula yeah. uh, and your descriptions of that patch of land are glorious and they're, Thank you. they're poetic in, in places and they're rhythmic and they're lovely and you're there and you can feel, you can hear the sounds, you can smell the smells and you can, you know, it's, it's just glorious um, and I'm very envious of you. Uh, that, that's Thanks. You. But, Thanks. But it takes a certain type of person because you left Kilmainham and Dublin and went down there and it's, it was a hard slog. And I imagine it still is a hard slog. But here's the thing I want to get on to. And it is because farmers are come into this a lot, don't they? You are a, a farmer, a sheep farmer, albeit, I, albeit tiny. No, I'm not a sheep farmer. No. I, I got rid of the sheep. Oh, did you get rid of the and sheep? Yeah, I There's did. There's a great line I, in the book because at one stage you, you, you packed all the wool from your sheep into the car yeah. to sell it. How much did you get for it? It was, it was four euros... 
30 something 32 uh, cents I don't yeah. remember exactly but I, what I do remember is that it was less than the price of a pint in the pub right. so that stuck in my head for that reason and it was yeah it was a it was a lot of wool it was um it was the wool from 34 sheep if I'm not mistaken okay. you know um so, so the polemic part of the book cites how we can change how we can change things yeah. and one of the things is that we we have to eat less meat because mm. you can uh, feed a lot more people if people only eat plant-based food. Mm. Yeah. Um, now that, that goes against, you know, you know, like recently, like a month ago, we had the, the thing of 23% or 30% reduction in the, in the methane gas output from agriculture. And you saw what happened there. Mm. Um, so how do you bring agriculture along with you? I think the first thing is to, is to, to tell people the truth which is that the 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 uh, of all the human activities that's like that's going to be worst affected by climate breakdown and i i i i say climate breakdown because i think climate change is the wrong term to use because it doesn't it doesn't get across the negative uh, side yeah. well it doesn't get across uh, how how uh, catastrophic what we're facing actually is if we don't change and the, 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 of all the human activities, um, agriculture is, is the first, is f- first in line to be absolutely devastated. I mean, the, if, if you understand anything about agriculture, the first thing you need to understand is that it's a, it's a relatively recent invention in human terms. It's only been around since the start of the Holocene. So you're talking 10 to 12,000 years. And the other thing that um, happened 10 to 12,000 years ago is that the Ice Age ended and we entered into the Holocene, which is a fairly, it's a relatively stable uh, period in, it's been a relatively stable period in climactic terms. And that's allowed agriculture. Now, if we, if we demolish that climate stability, agriculture is going to become impossible. And mm. that's already happening in large parts of the globe. Yeah. And... You know, for example, because the, of high temperatures and flooding. Yeah, you can't, you cannot farm if you don't, if if you if you get a year of drought and then a year and then, you know, three weeks of yeah. continuous rain yeah. and then another year of drought, yeah. or whatever uh, else. You know, knowing what you know. Yeah. Does it does it fill you with despair? I personally went through a period where I had to come to terms and make a peace with what's happening and say, well, I can only do what I can do. Uh, and But yes, there are times when, when I find it difficult. Because you described the, the matrix, people who know the matrix. So there's the red pill and the blue pill. Yeah. Go on, give the, us your analogy. The film, the matrix. Yeah. yeah. Well, in 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 the film The Matrix, it's science. It's a science fiction film. Um, uh, there's there's a scene in the film where the main character is offered a choice between two pills. One is blue and one is red. And the the blue one, if he takes the blue one, he'll go back to perceiving the world as everything is absolutely fine and everything is lovely. Uh, but it's a complete illusion. Whereas if he takes the red pill, he will see things as they are, which is this absolutely horrendous dystopian um, reality. Uh, and 
in in my book, An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, I use that as an analogy for gaining what Aldo Leopold called an educational uh Educa- uh, an ecological education, which by which he meant an ecological awareness. So if you become aware of just how completely trashed our ecosystems are, it's like taking the red pill. Owen Dalton on The Ray Darcy Show and his book, An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, A Personal Journey into the Magic of Rewilding, is available now. Graham Harderick's passion for baking will make you dust off the apron and take out the scales. But with his enthusiastic support, it won't just be a scone you whip up, but maybe a lemon and dill scone to serve with smoked salmon. Or a punch purin flavoured soda bread to serve with keema curry. And Claire Byrne, well, she's on board too. You're a bit fancy, right? You like your spices, you're well-travelled. But you do always go back to the the original. You go to the original first, yeah. really. And you say that brack with butter, you can't beat it. Oh, you can't beat it. And like, I brought some brack, put some butter on today. And you need to leave your teeth marks in the butter. That's how much butter needs to be on it. Your teeth marks need to be in that butter. But um, oh yeah, I just love traditional Irish baking. And so many, uh, you saw the book, there's so many women inspired my baking growing up, like from grannies, aunties, sister. My mum is a brilliant brilliant, brilliant cook and baker. Yeah, and you've devoted, like the section in the front, I found it really interesting to read that and to look at the pictures of your family and to talk about your background. Obviously, people might know your a butcher shop was what your family did and and you were involved in helping there. But your mother sounds like she was a great cook. Oh, she's a brilliant cook. Absolutely brilliant cook. And like from such a young age, like remember like, like, just so many good memories of baking and cakes and like but also her name like her friends do you know what I mean so like Mrs Burrigan or Mrs Coyle would come with something and they'd be swapping boxes of pavlovas for cheesecakes and this type of thing and just amazing women bakers and you guys were hiding upstairs waiting for the visitors to leave (laughs) so you could come down and nab waiting for Ruth to come and like Ruth used to visit like her neighbours she would used to go to our kind of yard to get to her friends and you'd see her coming and like wonder did she have a tart for us and like trying to watch like watching out those street window to see who she'd bring in tarts and stuff it was amazing yeah tarts now would it be apple tarts she'd bring or oh she'd bring all sorts of tarts raspberry she used to do amazing raspberry tart apple tarts apple and blackberries all like mm. all seasonal tarts and yeah. you can't beat a homemade tart I mean I've it's tried so to buy them but <laughs> I go home to my mother which I did last weekend and it's just a different experience oh, it's a different completely different experience even my sister-in-law Mags like she makes an amazing tart and like you just can't beat a proper homemade tart it's so good and you go through the basics in this book which I really like there's no shame and not knowing how to do no, very like, basic it, things. It's the one thing I want from the book. It's it's something for beginners so you can learn how to bake with this book. But also me using new spices and new, uh, new flavours, it's giving an experienced baker kind of some confidence in using their own f- thoughts and flavours. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What they like to use and how to use it to modernise a dish. So you obviously loved food and you were steeped in it at home. Then you went into religious life. You yeah. left that. There was the trip to Morocco. Yeah. Which seems to be really important in terms of broadening your horizons. It was one of these trips where I was kind of like, I was really, for want of a better word, a little bit lost. Didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went to Morocco. I was meant to go for a week and end up staying for a couple of weeks. And I just used it as a chance to travel around 
be on my own, think about what I wanted to do. And I just where I discovered food again, going into the souks in Marrakesh and like the flavour and the smells and the sounds, everything. You're just immersed in food. And I know though, no doubt somebody that's into craft will be immersed in the, the craft and the woodcraft mm-hmm. of a souk. I just particularly found the spices and these mounds of spices. And that's when I kind of, my love of food reignited and I fell in love with food all over again. It's one thing to appreciate all of those flavours and smells and using them in your cooking. It's another to take a soda bread and stick the spices <laughs> into that. I mean, have you had any people say to you, oh, you can't, you can't do that? No, I haven't. But like, what I wanted to do with the book was, we're so used to seeing traditional Irish books with a picture of a cottage on the front and very... <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for? I can't even... Just traditional. Traditional, traditional yeah. baking, yeah. But I, I love baking traditional Irish food, but I live in an apartment in Rialto in Dublin 8. Like, and I wanted the, the book to bring it up to date. You're the traditional, but modern... Like, And they also, when I keep on saying traditional Irish dishes... Some people will look at the book and go, that's not traditional. Like a jambon mm-hmm. is not traditional Irish food to most people. But I see it as there is a bit of a tradition with a jambon from your local supermarket there now. And I wanted to update that as well. So it's kind of taking all sorts of what I consider traditional Irish food and updating them. Now, your dedication at the front is for Dahi, your husband. Yeah. Dahi has a particular interest in wine, which yeah. I'm sure is helpful <laughs> to pair with the food. But also to Pappy. It's Pappy, my brother, yeah. Tell me about Pappy. Obviously, have a special relationship. Oh, Pappy, I have a really close relationship with him. He's my baby brother. My mum had three kids under three. I was three. (laughs) And Pappy was the youngest. And he now works um, with me in Dublin as well. He works in the kitchen three days a week. We started off, it was one day he was in residential care, um, or residential living, I should say. And since coming to work in Dublin, his independence has grown so much. He now um, himself and David live independently with a key worker in a house in Maynooth and his seeing his growth and having the ability to come to work, to properly work and get a wage has just changed his life amazingly over the last and 10 years. And you think you attribute all that to the work? To the- oh, work. It's all down to work. He lives for working and he, he sees the value in working and getting his pay slip and he knows that it's like he has a purpose in life now. For years he didn't and now his purpose is to get up and go to work. Mm-hmm. And we all need that. It's now, an amazing thing to be able to do. We're now, lucky. Now I see where you pay tribute to the inspiration that he gives Oh, he is to such, you. yeah. And like to be able to work with your family. Like my sister was part of the business for years and I said my husband is part of it. My mum has stood in the sink and washed up dishes. My dad helps with deliveries. It's a family business. It's lovely. Now, when I was small, there was no such thing as a cupcake. <laughs> and I'm sure in a tie there were no cupcakes either. Oh, no, it was buns. 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 Yeah, we had buns. But you're the cupcake bloke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? So the cupcake bloke, I actually, it was a Facebook page before I got made redundant for my last job. And it was a page where I just put up pictures of cakes that I made for family and friends then I got made redundant and decided to open my own bakery and I was like what will I call it and I was like well I have to put the, the Facebook page and I have some followers so I just stuck with it that's mm-hmm. all that's it just it's stuck no I make a lot of cupcakes um, but the bun man hadn't got the same ring to it <laughs> <laughs> and, but you do have a recipe in there for mammy buns oh mammy buns like I you can call them mammy buns daddy buns auntie buns whoever wants to bake with a kid that's what you call them to me it was mammy buns because I made them with my mammy and in the recipe in the book I have it you can make 12 large ones which we would classify as cupcakes or you can make 24 little buns like we would have had years ago with them remember the little printed the 
floral little cases that you yeah. got. Every house had a packet yes. of them um, and you get 24 of them, little buns. Yeah. But, but you're tweaking them as well, just like everything else. Yeah, tahini and black sesame seed is like the modern version of it. So it's bringing a lot of my sweet recipes are bringing umami flavours. So that's kind of slightly savoury flavours into recipes. Yeah, I love and, it. And, and it can be hard to get your head around that if you're used to the mammy bun. Yeah. But push yourself a little bit. Push yourself just... a little bit. Then, and then I also, at the beginning of the book, I have, so if you do buy a jar of tahini to make these buns, how to use it up. That's important to me as well. If you're not wasting food, there's a whole section. Or if you can't find tahini, what else can you use instead? What about that sacrilegious loaf there on the front of the of the book? What's that about? That is my modern version of a white soda bread. <laughs> yeah. That is um, a punch purin uh, soda bread. So it's a Bangladeshi spice and I'm serving it with a keema curry in the book. Right. So this is an Irish soda bread and you have yeah. added these extraordinary flavours yeah, to it. Yeah, Bangladeshi flavours and some curry powder and coriander and stuff in there and then you toast it and serve with this keema curry which is a nod to um, Sunil P- from Pickle, his yeah. restaurant in town where he sells goat go curry and toast. So it's actually a nod to him. I haven't been to India yet. One day I will get there but um, it's just a nod to that amazing. I can still remember the first time I had this toast and goat together mm-hmm. and um, that's just my version of it. Okay, It's amazing really to combine the two I mean, it hasn't, not to my knowledge, been been done before. But it's also like I I bake at home. Even though I have my bakery, I still bake at home. And that's the type of breads that I make at home. And that's what I wanted. As I said, keep on saying, I want to just show a modern version of Irish baking. Mm-hmm. And um, brown bread and brown scones, very traditional again. Tell us how you're, you're twisting those. So the brown bread. So in the brown bread, there's no exact... F- follow on recipe to it I add different flavours to it so it was like an idea of like if you're having a tomato soup and you want to have some brown bread with it why not throw some basil in there and make like Lovely. a basil brown bread so tomato and basil work really well together or put some dill and lemon in to have it with some smoked salmon so that's how I do that and with the scones my version of a I would see brown scones as quite savoury, but I eat them, and in the book I showed with cheese and marmalade. I love that combination oh together. <laughs> it's so, so good, and that's in the book. But then to modernise it, I have um, a smoked garlic um, tear and share warm scone bread, oh, and it's just amazing. really, really good. Now, I'm going to take, get you to take us through your soda bread recipe, not the one with the twist, just yeah. your regular soda bread, because I just want all of the bakers out, um, out there to, to know what you do, because everyone wants to know everyone else's soda bread recipe, don't they? Yeah. You use buttermilk. I know that for a fact. Always buttermilk. And it is simply, it's just a mixture of brown wholemeal and plain flour with a little bit of bread, soda and salt and buttermilk. Mm-hmm. And I put in some vegetable oil in there as well. Just to, it just helps it last a little bit longer and keeps it moist. Um, and I add a little bit of honey for sweetness and that's it. And yeah. it's a wet mix. So it goes, you literally mix it together and pour it straight into a two pound loaf tin. Is that your mother's recipe? Um, that is, no, it's actually a recipe that I worked on myself for the shop. So that's our own bakery recipe. Mm-hmm. So it is, yeah. yeah. Mum has lots and lots of seeds in hers. It's a really good brown bread recipe. Yeah, and that's a that's a different thing really, isn't it, when you start introducing the seeds into it? Yeah, you really like that, that is one of the, what I call my variations on the next page, or soda breads with a twist, is just adding all these in or like putting in nuts and dried fruit and seeds, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were talking about um, costs, you know, for business a little earlier. Yeah. Are you finding it difficult now? It is. Um, at the beginning of this year I was paying, I think it was 47 euros for a case of butter, which is 28 
pounds of butter. Yeah. And last week I got another price increase. It's now ninety nine euros seventy eight cents. Yeah, I mean that provides like you with a dilemma, and also you're huge. you're an energy intensive business because yeah. your ovens are on from probably the <laughs> middle of the night. I was only saying to Dahi, my husband, the other day, that I'm so looking forward to going into the winter because the kitchen's colder, so we won't have as much extraction on. <laughs> we still the lights are still beyond the ovens still beyond. We're actually going to fingers crossed cut our energy for the winter because the extraction isn't as much. Okay, so there might be a saving <laughs> yes, there. It's warm in the kitchen. It's amazing where we're looking for chinks of light, oh, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's crazy. It's a really, really tricky time. So then to come back to the book and come back to what people in Ireland are interested in, mm. do you find that people will opt for the traditional or are they prepared to go for the soda bread with the Indian spices? They're they're definitely, I think they're prepared to try things that are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, like very much so, like, again, and this is the other thing, I wanted to modernise because a lot of people have this, see soda bread as quite old fashioned. And I really wanted to modernise it because so many people are now used to their sourdoughs and French style breads and yeast breads. And I wanted to show how simple it is to make these breads at home. And actually, and talking about finances, cheap and very economical to make these breads at home. And then don't be frightened to use a little bit of flavour and add, like somebody made it last week and added sumac to it, which I just love seeing people using what they have at home to flavour. Yeah, well, it'll inspire people to try those different flavours. So you grew up with baking in the house. I grew up with baking in the house. Do you think that the next generation will grow up with baking in the house? Are people losing their skills? I really hope so, because it is... And even if it is only for you to bake a tray of mammy buns or daddy buns or whatever you want to call them with your kids, I say somewhere in the book, like maybe that child in 40 years time would be writing their book talking about they grew up baking with their parents or their guardians. Mm-hmm. And I just think it is such, I have such good memories of baking in my life that I would just love to see kids now growing up. And it is a skill set. You get a kid interested in food now and it's like they picky eaters like they will be more adventurous if they're used to baking and trying different things they won't be fingers crossed won't be as picky and it gives them a skill set heading into adulthood life mm-hmm. So now Mammy's buns can be your buns too Graham Harterick on Today with Claire Byrne and his book Bake Traditional Irish Baking with Modern Twists is available now Being threatened with arrest for holding up a blank sign sounds too bizarre to even warrant being called Orwellian. But nevertheless, it's the world we live in. Civil liberties groups and campaigners in the UK have expressed concern at the approach the police have taken to anti-monarchy protesters. And on Morning Ireland, London-based barrister Paul Powsland spoke to Mary Wilson about the following exchange that he had with a Met officer. So, just confirm, Why you're are you asking for details. my details? Just for, I was holding up a blank sign. Okay. Why are you asking for my details? You said you're going to write stuff on it that yeah. may offend people. I said I was going to write not my king, king okay. on a sign. Yeah. And you're asking my offend, details. It may offend someone. Who's that going to offend? Don't know. Someone not my king. Someone yeah. might be offended. Right. Do, do, are you going to listen or are you just going to talk over? Is that what you plan for? And that was an excerpt of an exchange between barrister Paul Powsland and a Metropolitan Police officer. So, what prompted him to take to the streets? Well, because I'd already seen a video of a woman with a Not My King sign being moved away from the Houses of Parliament. And um, that combined with the other stories uh, about, for instance, the man in Oxford who was arrested for shouting who elected him at the accession ceremony in Oxford made me really concerned that we were losing our right to freedom of expression during um, this time. And so I wanted to go out and to uh, make a point about keeping that expression. That's why I went out with a blank piece of paper, um, but of course threatened to write Not My King on it. And it was because of the threat to write Not My King uh, that that encounter uh, occurred with the police officer. Is it an offence to be offensive? 
Well, no. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost certainly not an offence to hold up a piece of paper saying, not my king. But the issue at the moment is the police are being very trigger-happy with arresting people um, who are in any way critical of the monarchy at this time. Um, and so that's why uh, it's important to, to, to fight back on it, I think. And actually, it's been very interesting because the, the media furore and the, the, the social media backlash actually led the police to issue a statement saying they do respect freedom of expression. Um, and so then a, a larger group of us went down to Parliament last night to test that. And actually, we all did manage to stand outside Parliament with various signs, some blank, some saying not my king, some saying end the monarchy, and the police didn't do anything. So in some ways, it's, 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 it's a good story of how um, the, the right was threatened, but by pushing back, we've managed to secure that right. So uh, anyone... Sorry. sorry, Paul, just to the argument that, that some people would say this is a time of, of, of mourning for your country, uh, mourning for, for, for Queen Elizabeth, uh, that it's not the time or place for these protests. What do you say? I think we need to make a really clear distinction between remembering and mourning the Queen, which I don't intend to protest, and I don't think that many people do, and protesting the accession of Charles. Because actually, Charles hasn't been slow in um, all the ceremonial part of, of his accession. You know, he, he didn't just say, oh, I'm king, and then be quiet. He's had numerous ceremonies all around the country with trumpeteers and people dressed in gold proclaiming him as king. He addressed Parliament both Houses of Parliament on Monday. He's, he hasn't been slow in using this time to cement his power as king. And therefore, if anyone objects to that, we should surely have the right to say so in this time. Are and, you... And the thing, yeah, sorry, sorry, the, sorry, I've interrupted you again. Apologies, Paul. Are you, anti- okay. are you anti-monarchy? Well, I wasn't really before this week. Last week, I was sort of agnostic. I thought intellectually, it's probably not a great idea, but, you know, the Queen's always been there and it kind of works. But actually, this week, I have become Republican because of what I've seen is a slightly cynical operation to use the memory of the Queen to um, cement Charles's position as king and to stop people even objecting to that. And uh, as you say, the Met Police have released a, a video, I think, on social media and, a st- a media and a statement saying that their response to people who were protesting would from now on be proportionate and balanced. So do you say mission accomplished? Yes, I think so. And, and what, what we've demonstrated now is that actually anyone is free in this time to go out and express their opinion. And actually, I hope, you know, whether you're a monarchist or Republican, you, you go and do that. Um, so I think in some ways it's, it's, it's worked. Uh, right. A nice story that social media and, and a social media backlash has actually achieved what we wanted to, which is to make sure that free speech is, is retained. Paul Pausland on Morning Ireland. In theory, dating has never been more convenient. You can search for Mr or Mrs Wright as you relax on the sofa or on your morning commute. But what if the pool is incredibly reduced? That's one of the major problems with online dating in rural Ireland. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, journalist Leodon Hines chatted about her new book, the excellently titled Courting, Tractor Dates, Macra Babies and Swiping Right in Rural Ireland. Leodon explained the inspiration. We hear stories that are urban based a lot about dating and we don't hear so much about how these things work in rural communities. And so I wanted to look, I suppose it started with the kind of technical, logistical almost elements of it. So, you know, if you're living in a smaller community and you're on the apps, are you going to bump into people who you went to school with? Yeah. As it turns out, yes, you are, as Timmy from Kerry told us. Um, are you going to be forced to travel longer distances? Because, again, you're in a smaller community, there's less people 
that was again a yes. So that was kind of the starting point was to, you know, there's been a lot of changes in dating. The apps have completely changed it. It's the main way now that people meet each other. But how was that working mm. in rural communities? So that was kind of okay. our starting point with it's it. It's funny, when, when um, online dating first started, mm. uh, which was, what must be, is it 15 years ago? Kind or? of 2006 around that then. That long was ago, was, yes. Yeah. So not, not that, is that not 15 that. years ago? Thereabouts. Scary. You and me on the maps. But when it started, I think there was a sniffiness around it. 100%. Wasn't there? And there was yeah. a kind of sense of kind of, oh, kind of strange people go on that. And, oh, and if they said, where did you meet? I mean, we met on the internet. You might as well have beamed down from Mars. Oh, yes. And people would say, well, we have our story because we don't <laughs> like to. And actually, one of the women I spoke to, Izzy, she mentioned that her chapter is called The Tinder Glitch. And she said, I always wanted to have this lovely story. And I kind of resisted <laughs> the fact that, you know, my story was I met him on Tinder. But actually what happened was she was living in West Cork. She was very set. You know, it was within two, 20 kilometres he had to be. And Tinder threw up a guy who lived in another county. Yeah. And now <gasps> they've had a baby since the yeah. book was written. They, yes. You know, and that was so, you know, that was her like, OK, I'm actually OK with the fact that it was Tinder. But I really noticed that. So people who are kind of settled and married and that, they would talk about online dating with this kind of sense of horror, like what is going on? Whereas everyone who's still single, it's accepted. It's how people meet and nobody's massively enthusiastic about it. But there's not that shame and that kind of like, oh God, you've had to resort to online because yeah, you couldn't find something. That's gone. That's gone. That's I'm glad gone. to hear it because a yeah, couple of my friends yeah. have met the most amazing partners yes. online and, yeah. and I'm delighted. Like yeah. it's really happy and it all ends really Absolutely. well. So that's snobbery if you like or that sort of sideways jaundiced arched eyebrow. It's, and again as well, if you're in a smaller community, it's opening people up to people they would never have met before. Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't have had the access. Yeah. So obviously the internet is a scary world in many ways but it is also a world of people you would previously not have access had access to so with, with that in mind and we'll mm. we'll get into the you know the the, the rural and end of it if you mm. like so tinder uh, sorry depends on the the dating um site mm. it doesn't it really it's like some of them i hear some people say like there's one or two and i hear names i've never been on one so mm. i don't know mm. uh, but i've heard now and that's not me saying uh, that's not judgmental. It's just because it's just. Well, you're not, not if you're not in the world, you're kind of not up to up date. To speed. On it. So yeah. I'm asking from a sincere place mm. that I hear that there's plenty of fish. Is another one I hear mm. about, uh, and Bumble, Bumble I think Hinge, is the one. Yeah. Hinge. Okay, yeah, I haven't heard yeah. that one, but I hear like there are some for people who are going. Like, is Bumble the one where women decide exactly who's yeah, running yeah. the show? I mean, Tinder. You know, people would talk about generally with a kind of shudder. You know, and it's for <laughs> because it's considered for hookups. So it's just sex. And if you yeah, exactly, which yeah. is fine if that's what you're looking for. For, but yeah. I suppose a lot of people I spoke to were looking for a relationship okay. and there's also a sense with Tinder of this just kind of free for all because there's no blocks you're getting unsolicited nude pics and you know all this kind of thing but interesting like one of the women I spoke to from Galway yeah. she had been living in London for years and she said nobody over there uses Tinder but when she moved home everyone was on Tinder so you know maybe I suppose it does it maybe depends you know where you're living people weren't not on it but they weren't they weren't loving it and okay. definitely you know there is that sense of the kind of wild west of it I suppose Well <laughs> that's all part of the internet story isn't it yeah. but but let's get back to where we are which is heading to uh, as you say rural Ireland mm. um, I'm going to ask you about Edward from Gorey he's 32 years old he'd grown up on a sheep farm mm. joined a dating agency worked full time uh, he's a perfect example to begin with. Mm. Yeah, and 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 Ed, um, he really wanted to meet someone. He was a little bit cautious about about on the apps, and he just said, you know, not for me. Like you say, he had he had done the thing of joining something and getting out of his comfort zone. Yeah. Um, but he actually met his partner in work 
so that kind of thing of I knew of her which came up a lot for people and that really I think speaks to a sense of safety you know they were in my community I knew their family they're not some randomer um, and what Ed found was he he had met he would meet people and it would be going well but then there would come a time where he would be incredibly busy now Ed like a lot of people is not making his full time living a lot of people I spoke to off the farm yet his father is still farming so he was doing his 9 to 5 job but also farming before after weekends so there would come a weekend where he would be you know there would be busy time on the farm and he would explain to the person I'm just not available and it, it became a little bit of an issue if somebody wasn't of a farming background they couldn't understand yeah. that so what had happened with Ed was his girlfriend her grandparents she didn't grow up on a farm herself but her grandparents were farming and so she brought that understanding and you know that was the kind of really practical element of it but then he said there was also and again a lot of people spoke about this they spoke about when it was farming not everyone I spoke to was in farming but a really vocational sense of their job was a way of life. And Ed described how sometimes he'd be going for a walk down the fields and he'd ring his girlfriend and she'd be out walking and they shared this kind of love of the outdoor world and that, that kind of lifestyle. So it was that thing for Ed, which it was for a lot of people, of my place gives me a way of life that's really important to me and I need to find somebody who shares that love of that way of life whether that's like Ed on a farm yes, or whether you have Deirdre who's living on a small island community she grew up in Dublin she visited a far, um, one of the Aran Islands years and years ago when she was a teenager and thought this sounds amazing um, and moved to an island and you know that was the lifestyle and, and in, in Deirdre's case she thought I, I know I may not meet someone because I'm in you know there's less than 200 people on this island but that's okay it's the place so yes. I think for people it was I was really struck by you know like the, so many people their place was so important to them in that sense of the life that it gave them and then it was the kind of almost tension between finding someone who also appreciated that place and the lifestyle yeah know? so that's that, that's like um, soul mates yeah, yeah, you, yeah but if that's like uh, it was ever thus wasn't it I mean yeah. if you want to find somebody who wants to walk with you you're going to want, want to walk in the right places together and you'd be into the same things that's I mean, it's it pretty yeah yeah Graham, 32 years old, gay man living in an Inish man. Yes. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, I don't know what does that do for his options. Well, he said himself, um, and I'm quoting here, I'm not gay on the island because there's nobody to be gay with. So, <laughs> <laughs> but so Graham quite brilliantly put it up. And again, Graham's situation was, uh, grew up in the outskirts of Dublin, came out, uh, you know, that's all fine. Um, had a very difficult experience um, uh, and wanted to live somewhere that was really peaceful and a really slow pace and just get himself back up. He'd been hit by a car, hadn't he? Yeah, so he had yeah, PTSD he'd really, of yeah, yeah, exactly. So he'd been really through it. Um, so first of all, moved to Connemara and then um, got a job in the knitting factory on Inish Man and loves his life there, loves his community. But the challenge is, um, it, okay, he hasn't met someone on the island. He's online dating, but, uh, you know, what Graham identified was, say I might meet guys, he'd met people who were counties away. Mm. And you'd go on your holiday and you'd meet them whenever. But how do you get to the point where you know each other well enough that he'd say to them, do you want to come live on the island? Like, and that was yeah. a challenge for people where, you know, every like if you're long distance, how do you get regular in each other's well, lives day to day? who's the base camp for the relationship well, that, that's the big that, one isn't yeah it? absolutely and like that was um, that ranged from being something that was mildly annoying for people like one of us might have to move to being like a real issue I spoke to Sophie who's a 23 year old farmer and, I, and her mum Steph and, and you know 
so I was saying, well, what if you met a farmer? And Sophie's taking over her farm now. What happens if you meet a farmer? And she had said, I, I really would want to meet a farmer. I want someone who knows my life and what it's about. Yeah. Who's going to move? And, you know, her mother said, well, I think Sophie's well able to, you know, I could see the mother, Steph, no, she's not moving. You know, why yeah. would Sophie? Be? But but so there's there's kind of just the, the hassle of having to move or there's the huge, like, Emotional infrastructure yeah, around and that practicalities too. Practicalities yeah. and all and the that. Land. Don't forget the land. That's it. Ireland exactly. And the land. Exactly. Nearly, so I think sometimes they prefer, they're married to the land, you know, and and understandably, like you know, that was the other thing that I I just thought was really gorgeous was talking to people and this sense of and this was businesses as well as like Paul who I spoke to. It might be a business, or it might be a farm, but the family carrying this kind of enterprise throughout yes. the generations, and like Sophie herself said that you know the whole family sits down and talks about the farm, and 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 so you understand that this isn't just like oh well I have this nine to five job and sure I'll get another job somewhere else you know if I move. Yes. This is a way of life. This is something that. That they're thinking of generations ahead and, and, and you know, maintaining this for them. So I can really understand that. Um, the other one I wanted to ask you about is uh, blow-ins. Yeah. And, and, the, and because any time we've ever done a show from any town, village or city or county, yeah. uh, this comes up all the time. Like somebody will be a guest and will say, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just a blow-in. I've only lived here for 58 years. <laughs> and, you know, there is something about the blow-in factor, isn't there? I mean, did, did you come across this when you're... Yeah, I mean, again, to bring you back to, say, um, Deirdre, who was on the island, uh, and her story was that uh, her partner had an affair and she talked about being the last to know and everyone around her knew. But the way the community held her, really, like mm. they... She, she works in the shop and people come into the shop and they'd slide something over the counter and tap that's for you and it was money and they were saying to her we want they wanted her to stay you know and mm. and and her her boss allowed her to rent a house you know for much less you know they made it so she could she talked about her mum came over to see her a few months after the breakup and you know did the thing of the, your mommy does come on we're going out for dinner and brought her down to the restaurant and when she went to pay the bill she came back to the table crying and her mum said oh, come on he's not worth it she said no they've paid the bill uh, for us they were looking after micro her kindnesses. yeah and yeah. they were just trying to say please don't leave oh, that's we so love sweet. you here. So like, yes, there was, and I suppose as well, you know, I definitely felt we're in kind of a time of movement where there's both blow-ins, but there's also a lot of people who are returning home because, you know, the pandemic and working from home has allowed... Blowbacks. Blowbacks, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely phrase. And has allowed them the option that they never had before. So I suppose it felt like, you know, I definitely didn't get a sense of like the outsiders that or that anyone felt like that, you know. You know, if anything, I think sometimes they are the people who have chosen that community and, yeah. and so it's, it's it's especially positive for them because they have moved to a place because it's specifically where they want to be. Um, the, the, the fact that uh, men and women use the apps Started dating apps differently. Mm. I found mm. intriguing. Would you tell us a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, men, I spoke to Dr. Nicola Fox Hamilton, who this is her area of research and she is fascinating. And she talked about how men will just swipe on, you know, they, they'll cl- say yes on everything, you know, on everything <laughs> sounds terrible, sorry. And, and Sarah, who I, I spoke to in Goy, you know, she said she went back, back on the apps, people would say, and they'd always kind of sigh. Um, and she said <laughs> a thousand people had, had liked her, her profile. And she said, I'm, I'm not that great. Like, that's, you know, whereas women are much choosier so I think it's something like one to every four and they're much slower and obviously you know some of that is to do with safety like Nicola was saying women will take in the cues of like the photographs and that kind of thing Mm. they're much more looking for signs of this is an okay person and you know the reality is women do get more abuse and it was really interesting talking to Betsy in Connemara so Betsy's bisexual and she was had the experience of 
dating women and oh, men yeah. online and she was kind of able to compare that you know and she would say she, like she was saying at the start you know I really just wanted to like have a bit of fun she was coming out of a divorce she went through that phase of like making everything okay for my kid and she was ready to date and the amount of men who messed it up for themselves by just <laughs> not being able to have a proper conversation really? what were they doing oh like it, it, the problem there they go hazard, hi, yes. yeah. hi. Oh, oh hi and like yeah, yeah. or exactly crudeness and yeah. she said like really I wasn't looking for much I was just looking for a bit of civilised wow. conversation I was ready to get back out there whereas you know women she said are almost gentle to the point of not wanting to hurt each other's feelings are you interested I'm not sure it's almost like the so we're opposite we're looking for middle ground here yes yeah uh, polite yeah. conversational just a bit of conversation yeah, yeah rather than um, <laughs> yeah. a photograph that's unsolicited yes, nobody, uh, and that's a grunt you know you've got to try a little harder than that yeah. lads like in fairness yeah the communication was definitely like there's a chapter about um Mockery, which I really wanted to get across. Yeah, talk to us about that. Yeah, and what I really wanted to get across there was the kind of loneliness that a lot of the men I spoke to felt. Okay. And um, John and Finton and that, they were so so beautifully honest and they both talked about how Mockery was wonderful then because it's in their community, it's meeting people in person and what they felt was this pressure online to perform. And I suppose that was the flip side of the high. What was behind that was mm. they found communication and they both kind of said at the end of the piece, you know, I just want somebody to love and I kind of have all this love to give and they wanted to meet someone and they found um, Finton went to a kind of a marsh, like a dating a- uh, event. Yes. Mockery were an amazing event. And like, you know, meeting the people in person and that was it and John was the same John was Mr. Personality one Mr. Personality I think it was 2019 and again he said like he loved the mock events but it was the online stuff they just couldn't make it land they just yeah. found the communication really challenging See that's it and Macra are just such a terrific organisation and, yeah, and they're doing yeah. they work really hard to their events are incredible in yeah and, and that, again that sense of community yeah. um, was amazing yeah okay um, we've got some messages in let's go to I'm just I should stress you're not a dating expert you're, you are <laughs> so is that far. right to say that the, yeah, I mean, I mean you've obviously done a lot of research. I've done a lot of research. So you might be able to answer one or two questions, <laughs> but I get the sense from some of the questions that it's like, ask Cupid, um, where should the, sure? you know, so. No, I, my, I mean, would you call it, my boyfriend contacted me on Instagram DM, so maybe like online dating adjacent is the best you could say. Oh, asymmetrical online dating. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. yeah, definitely. But we, again, I think if we knew of each other, so there was that kind of sense of, but no. Did he just say, hi? I, no, he didn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. He no, he didn't. He didn't. But no, I hadn't done. I separated about five years ago, okay. and I did like Betsy described in the book that thing of like battening down the hatches, make it okay for my daughter. You know, I wasn't. And then I started writing my first book, How to Fall Apart, was about going through marriage. So when I was reading writing that, I was thinking, I don't want to be dating anyone because I'll be kind of conscious of you know when I'm writing. And and then afterwards, again, it's something people talked about a lot is like dating as a kind of life admin thing and you know as a single parent you've only so much time away from your child mm. I always felt like I don't want to do that thing where you walk in and as Sarah described she had her wondering policies to get out of this where you walk in and you kind of immediately go this person's not for me and yeah. I'm stuck here for the whole evening I always felt if I'm if I'm taking a night off I'm doing the babysitting I want to see a friend and you know my life is busy single parent self-employed so I, I had never dated so you didn't want to waste a night <laughs> on an app-based creature looking at you who may terrible. or may not win. No, but just like throwing the dice in Vegas, you know. Do you know, you, and I, I might have one night where I wasn't parenting or wasn't, you know, she yeah. was up in bed, whatever, but I just always felt I want to go out with my friends and I want to yeah. make sure that that's a rejuvenating night. So um, uh, 
yeah, yeah, I, I think understand. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I was lucky he messaged me because I wasn't really making uh, any great any headway. In that. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you sign up for one or two of the apps then? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I no, um, just that went. worked out. He, that, that worked was, out. That was so it. Said, that the was book it. is dedicated to him, so we're. <laughs> No pressure on him, then. Ed. <laughs> but so that was a DM on Instagram success yeah, story. Okay. Yeah, Good on yeah. you. Um, uh, sorry, there was an expression you mentioned there, Lidon, about um, being somebody said that they were back on the apps yes. with, with a sigh. Yeah. Is, is that like, you know, somebody with a drink problem going back to the booze? Is that like it's, ever- No, it's more, I know this is a, a necessity, but it's not any, not something I relish. So if I yeah. want to meet someone, you know, I have to do this. But they would kind of like, you know, they'd go at it with gusto and then they'd get, you know, exhausted. more exhausted and yeah. it's demoralizing. And you're, you know, like actually uh, one of the girls I spoke to in uh, women, excuse me, I spoke to in Galway, she said almost that thousand men, it was mm. almost depressing because it actually made, not one of them was appealing. Now, yeah. I'm sure men have had, I'm not saying men are, you know, but it, it was almost oh there's nobody out here like even even when there felt like there were numbers it was like well none of these people really appeal to me um, so no it was like it was said like a, a kind of roll yeah. of shoulders yeah. and sigh and going back in the apps and I think it's just it's hard work and people need to take a break from it How does a 30 year old shy guy shy-ish guy in Dublin meet a girl he doesn't do nightclubs I mean do you want to try and answer that <laughs> I, I'm putting you on the spot but I was to say you're not an expert but Yeah I think it's really tricky shy. at that age because like you've, you've passed the pay stage you're not in school college yeah. new jobs you're not getting the influx of people that you would have been do you know the way this is, you know you're not really meeting you've met all your friends friends so I do think that's quite a difficult age I think you know I mean not to be mockerous a spokesperson but I actually think they do have branches that are not, if not in Dublin very near and like I definitely because it's not like we're all here to meet people which everyone can be a bit uncomfortable now I did speak to guys who were running speed dating events and I do think maybe you do have to kind of just take and again it's that thing of like back in the apps you have to get out of your comfort zone and okay. just do it. Throw the dice, as we say. Yeah. Uh, regarding online dating, any suggestions for a good site for us oldies in our 50s and 60s, Fiona, in Dublin? And that's, you're into the Bumble territory there, are you? Well, Bumble, I think, is, the, is, is for um, younger, where so. uh, women make the first move. But you can set your age uh, limits. So, you know, maybe that is the way oh, to okay. do it. So go yeah. to a regular app and say it's yeah. between these ages. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. Yeah. That, that's a very yeah. good idea. Can that lady, that'll be uh, my guest this morning, <laughs> Leodon Hayes, uh, can that lady uh, please do an audiobook? Her voice is to die for and it's very calming. Ah, and I love so the stories. Can so you name the author in the book again? Yes, Leodon Hines is the author of Courting, Tractor Dates, Macro Babies and Swiping Right in Rural Ireland. At the age of 16, I met my now husband of 35 years at a macro disco. 25 years later, my daughter met her husband at a macro event. It's a brilliant macro order. babies. Who That's needs, what a macro ma- baby Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who needs, who That's needs? so lovely. That was one of the guys, Mark, when he went to his local macro branch the first time he came home and his parents, who had met at macro, so that makes Mark a macro baby. Macro baby, mac- yes. And they were, and it's so and so there. And it was all the children of their generation who, oh, were, nice. who were at it. But oh, isn't lovely. that lovely? It's to hear? really lovely. I met my fiance online six years years ago says a text and we we're getting married in 2024 best thing that ever happened to me Brilliant. another are these dating stories fictional with fictional characters or are they real life oh, stories they are real they took me real. two years to find they that, was definitely a big, real. that was a great research uh, <laughs> job you did but like such a lovely you know at a time when we were all so kind of disconnected because it was the last two years obviously all travel was within restrictions a lot of time but like to be going around and meeting all these people in worlds that I would never have entered otherwise if I wasn't working this book and to connect with people when it felt like we were so shut down. I feel so lucky to have done that. Leodon Hines on The Ryan Doherty Show and her new book, Courting, Tractor Dates, Mockra Babies and Swiping Right in Rural Ireland is available for pre-order now. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.